Good morning. I love that Bible verse. Can, can we read that Bible verse together? I rejoice greatly in the Lord. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. That includes standing up and worshiping. <laughs> Could you stand with us this morning and believe God? Believe God for things that seem impossible. Yeah?
welcome you into our presence. We want to reflect you. We want to say back to you the ways you blessed us, Lord. We want to thank you for this day. We want to set aside everything going on in our life and just make room to just sit at your feet and enjoy you. May your people reflect you well this morning, Lord, and may we leave refreshed and learning one more thing about you that we can carry all week long. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. Hey, I just have a few announcements for you guys this morning. And that's coming through some pretty nasty. Um, we are going to have a baptism. Yes. That's going to be on August 26th, so the last Sunday of the month. Uh, we'll also have a church picnic, picnic during that time, and you'll eventually get the levels right, because it sounds horrible. Um, so... I think we have maybe a couple of people that will be there for baptism, so please come and encourage them. Uh, this is one of the key things we do as part of our Christian faith, and we're better. We're getting better. Good. Um, also, next Sunday, um, we'd like to, right after the service, uh, hold a, I don't know how short it'll be, but a congregational meeting uh, to give you an update as to where we're at in regards to the pastoral search. Uh, as well as to answer questions in regards to uh, Crossroads that's coming up as well. Uh, where we're at in the process right now is we finished the church profile, yay, um, and we've delivered it to the district. So that's a huge step. The next step is a meeting with the district uh, this coming Thursday, so right before we have a, our discussion with you guys. Um, and then we begin the pre-interview process. Uh, so that takes us into the next phase. Um, so please come stay for that. Um, you don't have to be a member to come to that. If you're coming here, you're going to be interested in, in knowing where we're at with that. Um, the other thing I think that still needs to be brought up is Crossroads, which John has, uh, will be delivering that. We got a mic for you down here, John. Yeah. You need that for the people that are listening online, honey. It's always good to pick on the next generation. Okay, we're going to talk about crosswords, right? Okay, go ahead. He's a man of few words. Hey, just a general update on all of Crossroads. Um, the director of Crossroads is actually in Mexico today as Crossroads takes a leap and is starting to do some international things. So that's the big picture. Um, as it gets closer to home, uh, we wanted you to know that this year we will be doing just two schools instead of three. So we want you to be uh, praying about that. Also thinking about, is it possible for you to be involved? Those Two schools will be on Wednesday and Thursday. <laughs> Meanwhile, do you know what Fridays are? Yes. What is it? It's about fun. And what, <laughs> this is the tough, what day is it held on? Friday. Wow, this kid's brilliant. This kid, you guys are raising him right. He figured that out all by himself. So, I'm going to ask you to step right up here, young man, right behind the, the table. We have, Emmett, we have asked all these people out here 
to create games for Fridays. But I'm not sure they fully understand how you and I function at Friday, so we're going to give them an example. Okay, so because I'm going to be traveling uh, some and not going to be here next Sunday, I'm going to have faith that you guys are going to create these fun booths so that Emma and I can do things on Friday the 17th. Okay, but I do need you to actually tell me that you're going to do these too so you don't all do the same thing. For instance, Garth has already laid claim to the toilet paper basketball game. So don't think that you can make your own toilet paper basketball game that is claimed. Okay? So I need you to, to plan to do that. However, it's really simple to make a booth and bring it. But I wanted you also to know there are planners. There are people who like to plan. I don't happen to be one of them. But for those of you who like to plan, here's what's going to happen. If it's nice weather on Friday, we are finally going to do what? Shoot Gavin's rocket. Shoot the rocket that Gavin built, and hopefully it'll all stay together, and maybe a few other ones, okay? So, Gavin, you better be praying for nice weather because it keeps raining on our Fridays, right? It is a rain or shine event, so plan your booth to be either outside or inside. The beauty of it being outside is the people who clean on Saturday will love you, okay? If it's inside, then you can plan to help them. Kneel before the hallowed booth, okay? To show you how simple it is to make a booth, I found these supplies right here at church other than these noisy bowls. There's a bowl for you. What's inside of it, young man? M&M's. M&M's. This is a good game? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good game already, okay? What's inside that one? Nothing. Nothing. How many M&M's? Hi. You were scaring me there for a minute, young man. Okay? <laughs> Here you go. You and I are going to race. Can you pick up those M&Ms and get them in your bowl before I do? Since we're a good Christ-following church, we are not laying bets. Okay? On your mark, you can only pick it up with the straw. Okay? I'm not telling you how to do it. Ready? On your mark, set, go. Do you want these people to plan? Me. Yeah, let's plan to be here. Thank you. I would like to pray for the offering and uh, also for all of you. Father, I thank you for Evan and all that he represents uh, through Crossroads, for the work that you've given us here in this church to go outside of the joy of being together to spread that joy to others. And as we invite families to join us, in America and ask that you uh, help us to be both good stewards and generous as we give to the church, give to you, uh, give 
to whatever other organizations we each give to, but uh, as our way of honoring you and praising you for all that you've given us. We praise you and thank you for this time together today and ask this in Christ's name. Psalm 133 says this, How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. Read that again. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It was part of my devotions in my devotional yesterday and one of the things the little devotional said was this. The blessings of unity fall on God's people in every age, Emmett. <laughs> Believers today don't need to travel to Jerusalem to enjoy it when we gather wherever we can in local churches. Although each believer has a personal walk with God, the Christian life is not meant to be solitary. God's provision for his people in this life comes primarily through the body of Christ, the united whole, of which each individual and every faithful local church is part. So together, united in Christ, we are loved by God and experience the riches of his grace. God's attributes in this psalm. God is holy, God provides, and God is relational. What a God we serve. Yeah. Would you stand with us, please?
going on in our life, he does something remarkable in us. It's very hard for the worship team to go without Judy. It's very hard. It's been every week. It's been really difficult. We hear her voice. Uh, we hear Tim preaching. We hear this, and it, it's, it's hard. It's hard for us. And this week, not even Doreen and Mr. Joe. <laughs> and and to, to do this alone is not easy. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He moves his people where he wants them. And we can adjust, yeah? Blessed be the name of the Lord. Amen. Uh, you may be seated. That uh, quote on uh, unity. The Corinthian church was not that, especially when it came to communion. Uh, let me just read this here. I'll probably do it a little bit differently today, so we'll just figure out how we do that. Uh, but this is what it says here in 1 Corinthians 11. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have been differences uh, among you to show which of you has God's approval. So when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another goes sick. Or gets drunk, actually. Uh, don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or you, do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. Those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we are, were more discerning with regards to others, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. They were guilty of not having unity in the body of Christ. They would come, the richer ones would come with their own food. The other ones would come who were poor with what they had. Uh, some would go and eat uh, ahead of time because they brought what they brought. They didn't share um, and it really left the body divided. Um, it left them feeling uh, humiliated. Um, so we come together as the body of Christ for communion today. So let us examine our hearts. Let us uh, 
really prepare ourselves um, for what we are about to undertake. Uh, it is important what we do. He told us. It was a directive he gave. So when we do this, I think we'll do it a little differently today. Let's come together as a family. We'll come up um, together while the first song is playing. We will gather and collect um, the bread um, uh, and the wine, and we will uh, go through the song, and we will uh, participate together at once.
Father, it is incredible to consider that you would send your son to die for us. For someone righteous, maybe, but for me? Awesome to consider. It's with that that we participate here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's eat and drink.
Once again, I have to decide if I'm using my glasses or not. We're going to try without, see how that goes. You're in for a hunk of meat today. Uh, in your notes, you'll see there's a lot of scripture references. So, uh, we will get through the mouth. Oh, thank you, because I forgot, even as Ray told me just two minutes ago, that the children may go to children's church. So Zeke, you man in that? And let's see. Okay. Um, ordinary people doing extraordinary things. What I want to start with um, as I was thinking about this was this message really is for you, for you, for you, for you, for you, for you. It's for everyone because we're just ordinary people. My father was in the Navy in the late 1950s where he worked really as an electrician repairing submarines. It's kind of cool as part of the Navy. You can see there the picture of him. That's where I get my good looks from. (laughs) And that's his ship. It was the tender, the Howard W. Gilmore. So I'm sure there's no relation. (laughs) Um, and the yellow circle was about where he worked. Um, they would pull, you know, submarines up, and they would, I don't know what they do to work on them. Um, I don't think they ever sank them in the process, but he uh, was served in the, in the late 1950s, I guess. It was between the Korean and the Vietnam War. Um, he missed um, actual war by only a few months. Um, but nonetheless, he was part of the Navy, and I really didn't know um, much about his uh, time in the Navy. He never really talked about it. Um, one of the things that his tender would do is it would pull these derelict ships out into the ocean so that other ships could fire on it for practice. So although he never saw combat, he definitely got to be part of live fire uh, exercises. Um, now, before you think that he's awesome or something like that, let's, let's put this into context. He was stationed in Key West, Florida. So palm trees, yeah, that's where he was. Not a rough gig. Uh, because of his tour in the Navy um, and probably my own self-interest, growing up, you know, I always liked to watch war movies. Whether it was an old-time war movie, a documentary even today, Uh, those were the things that I watched and I enjoyed. It was probably the only black and white type things I can watch. I can't watch those, you know, whatever, um, you know. I Love Lucy, I used to watch that, and The Honeymooners, but not things like uh, Little Women or or Casablanca or that kind of stuff. No, 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 that kind of of stuff. Um, I was never really, I don't know why, but I was never really a history buff. Um, That wasn't until later in life when I started to appreciate it. Um, but I th- maybe it was just always because the good guys would beat the bad guys. Or I'm a guy, and I like that kind of stuff. Um, so, yeah, even now, I like watching those kind of things, whether it's uh, in the movies, whether it's on Netflix. Um, and one of those movies that came out, I think, two years ago, was a movie by the title Hacksaw Ridge. Has anyone here seen it? Yeah? 
Um, initially, I was like, I'm going to see that movie. And then when I watched the trailer, I was disappointed. Because it was about a pacifist in World War II that wouldn't fire his weapon in combat. And my thinking was that if you're next to me in battle, I want to make sure that you got my back. And I'm not exactly, you know, if you're not ready and willing to defend your position, I'm not sure you're supposed to be in the military. What a stupid movie. That's what I thought. So I decided not to watch it until a trip to Paris. When, when you got eight, nine hours to kill, you know, what are you going to do? You're going to watch some movies. So I decided, okay, I'm going to buckle in and I'm going to watch this movie. And uh, I was completely wrong in my assessment of the movie. The story behind Hexall Ridge is about a guy by the name of Desmond Doss, who was drafted in the Army in 1942, but refused to bear arms. And prior to being drafted in the Army, uh, his family was not that different than ours, our dysfunctional families. The defining moment in his life was when he was a boy, and his father and his uncle, that's the real story, not the one on TV, uh, they got into a fight, and the father pulled a gun on his uncle. Um, and eventually his mother stepped in. But from that point on, he decided that he would never touch a gun again. They had a, on the wall the Ten Commandments and a picture of Cain killing Abel, and that was something that reg- resonated in, in his mind. After he was drafted in the Army, he became a medic. Uh, you can see that the movie is the first two. On the right, on the top, that's him. So that is uh, him in, I don't know, he was only there for a couple days, so it had to be the first day. I don't know why you're taking pictures when you're getting hammered, but not with alcohol, with machine guns. Um, so when he was in the army, uh, he became a medic, refused to carry a weapon, and it caused a lot of ridicule um, by his fellow soldiers. You know, he wanted to be a medic, um, and his concern was for people. Uh, but the army couldn't discharge him because it was on his religious uh, grounds. Uh, he was a Seventh-day Adventist, and he was very devoted to his faith. Ultimately, they were deployed to Okinawa, and specifically to the Maeda Escarpment. So the whole, like, Okinawa was a big cliff, 350 feet high, with everyone entrenched. The Japanese were entrenched on it. The uh, term hacksaw comes from the onslaught of machine gun fire. Well, you can understand, right? Um, they were living, uh, or they were there. When they got there, they were to re- relieve a previous battalion because um, they were trying to take the hill. They were getting, suffering casualties, and they had to replace them. In the course of doing so, you know, their own people uh, from their battalion had heavy casualties. And the people that he was with, they had to retreat off the top. Um, He stayed on the top, though. And throughout the night, he rescued and lowered anywhere between 50 to 100 men at the rate of about one every 10 minutes down a 350-foot cliff while they're trying to shoot at you. Incredible. Some of the stories after that they were able to interview the Japanese were uh, asking why didn't you, you know, why didn't you hit him? Why didn't you kill him? And the one Japanese guy said, I had him in my sights. Every time I went to pull the trigger, it jammed. That's kind of cool. Um, so one of the things that he would say as he would rescue one is basically he would just say, Lord, let me save just one more. 
And he did that all through the night. The next day, the soldiers were amazed at what the medic did, uh, so much so that they waited for him to finish his devotions the next day before they went back up on the hill because they wanted him there with him. That's a complete 180 degrees from when he was uh, in training camp. Ultimately, he was injured that day, literally kicking grenades out of the way. He didn't have a gun. Um, to save those that he was in the hole with, that he was sharing. And he was awarded the Medal of Honor for the, just the three weeks that he had served in the army. The Bible is filled with people um, that God used to accomplish the extraordinary. And I want to take the rest of the time to provide a series of vignettes, as John mentioned last week, who uses two vignettes in two weeks, at least the word, uh, to see a series of vignettes like Desmond, who were just ordinary people that were doing extraordinary things as God enabled them. Uh, and to expound a little bit further on it, I want to look at two different ways of looking at it. The first one is I want to take a look at a series of people that, despite their human weaknesses, their human frailties, God used them to do uh, something great. And the second series of vignettes will take a different look from a different angle, and that is of their age. So let's begin. Our first guy, none other than Noah. Um, if you want to turn with me, you can turn to Genesis 6-5, where it says the following. The Lord had saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart were only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them there the animals, the birds, the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was a righteous man. He was blameless among the men, among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. God took this person, he was really just a farmer of grapes. He worked the fields and turned him into one of the greatest shipbuilders the world has ever known. I guess it's kind of uh, when you got the plans given to you by God, I guess that's going to make you a great shipbuilder. He was used to create an ark out of Cypress that would house a remnant of God's creation from judgment that was to come down on all the world. What was Noah's failing? Well, it doesn't say whether or not he had it before the flood, but afterwards, at least on one occasion, he, you could say he was a drunkard. He imbibed himself just a bit on the fruit of his labor. But in the end, Noah made himself available and was obedient to his calling. Our next person, which uh, uh, Garth mentioned last week, was none other than Moses. Moses stands high and above everyone else when it comes to the Jewish faith. And he was one, uh, as he was one of the leaders, or he was the one who would deliver the Israelites from slavery from Pharaoh in Egypt and lead them through the wilderness to the promised land. Yet despite his incredible leadership that he displayed, Moses too had a weakness. That's in Exodus 4.10 to 17. Moses said to the Lord, Pardon your servant, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. And the Lord said to him, 
Who gave human beings their mouths? Who made them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. But Moses said, pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. Yeah, that could be us. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses. Ooh, not good. And he said, what about your brother Aaron the Levite? I know that he speaks well. He is already on his way to meet you, and he'll be glad to see you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. I, uh, I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you, and it will be as if he were your mouth and as if you were God to him. But take this staff in your hand so that you can perform the signs with it. Moses' weakness, at least in this case, you could say is kind of like public speaking. Despite that, he was used by God to perform the miraculous signs and lead the people out of Egypt. He was available and obedient. Our next vignette is a woman by the name of Rahab. After entering the promised land, their first battle is at Jericho. Joshua sent two spies into Jericho, because 12 wasn't good the first time, so I guess you only send the two that were good. Um, And they used a prostitute's house as their base camp, for all intents and purposes, in Joshua 2.1. Let's read this. And Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go, look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, Look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who have come to you and entered your house, because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go, quickly, go after them quickly. You may still catch them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax that she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers has gone, the gate was shut. Then after the uh, king's uh, messengers left, Rahab asked the following of the spies. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. What was her weakness? She was a prostitute. Yet through her obedience and giving the spies lodging, acknowledging that God is the God in heaven and on earth, she literally became part of Jesus' genealogy. So you get in the theme? She was available and she was obedient. The next vignette is a great one because I think we can identify with him fairly easily. He's none other than our friend Gideon. He lived at a time when the nation of Israel was doing evil in the sight of the Lord. And as a result, God had put a thorn in their, sight, uh, in their side by the name of the Midianites. Their hand was heavy on the Israelites until, you know, as the judges goes, until they finally cry out um, and someone comes to deliver them. And this time, God picks Gideon. God saw Gideon as a mighty warrior. 
However, Gideon saw himself, well, let's read. Turn with me to, if you want to, turn with me to Judges 6, 15. It's only one verse, so you can find it quickly. This is what Gideon says. Pardon me, my Lord, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in the family. So God takes this least likely person of all, the weakest clan, uh, the weakest person in that clan, in the family, to over, and he has to overcome his weakness, which is, maybe it's insecurity. How could God use someone of so little importance to accomplish such a great task? And he does probably something all of us would do, Right? God, if you're really going to do this through me, I put the fleece out, and if it's wet in the morning and dry, then this is from you. And then when it happens, God, I'm going to put it out again because I don't really believe you, and it may have been the weather, so if it's dry and everything else is wet, then it's from you, right? And ultimately, those things happened. But when you go into battle, right, you take enough people to win the battle. So Gideon goes out with, 30,000 men, and God whittles them down and whittles them down to just 100 men. And that's just, just to prove a point that it's going to be God that wins the battle. He's going to use Gideon, but it's ultimately God. For Gideon, his weakness is his insecurity that God can use him, but he did use them, and he, they defeated the Midianites. He was available. He was obedient. Our next one, probably too is someone we can identify with. And that is our friend Jonah. If you go to Jonah 1.1, it starts like this. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, I can't say it. Uh, Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness had come up before me. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) You said, where? Uh, But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish which was really the farthest place in the known world you can really get to. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish and fled from the Lord. Now, if that's not someone between those last two guys and this, that last guy and this guy that we can identify with, I don't know who else we can. Nineveh, the center of the Assyrian Empire, about 120,000 people, and about 60 miles in width. It's a three days walk to go across. That's if you can walk 20 miles a day. Um, The people, wicked, according to God, and Jonah was to go there and tell them to repent. Jonah, in his reluctance to follow God in this, tries to run as far away from God as possible in order to avoid doing what God had commanded him to do. I don't fault the guy. He might be saying, you know, go to Iran, go to North Korea, tell Kim Jong-un that he's doing wrong and should repent. That would not get you very far uh, before you're taken from this world unless God really intended to do it. Despite that, though, God continues to pursue him. What does he do? He sends a storm. He jumps overboard, gets swallowed by a fish. Um, you know the story. In the end, he does preach to them, and they do listen to him. But even then, Jonah's not quite happy about it, is he? His weakness, he's kind of a reluctant witness to the Assyrians. Yet God used even him to bring a nation to repentance, at least for a period of time. 
He was available and eventually obedient. If we switch to the New Testament, we find similar examples of people doing extraordinary things. Let's take a look at Matthew. Who is Matthew? He's a tax collector. Works for the IRS. No, he doesn't. He was despised by his own people. Why? Because he worked for the oppressive Roman Empire that's ruling over Israel at this time. They were occupying the land. He works for them as a tax collector, extracting money from his own people to fund the empire that is ruling over them and likely keeping some for himself. Here's Matthew's calling in Matthew 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. Later, as Jesus was dining at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked the disciples, Why does your teacher eat uh, with the tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Yet even for a person that essentially is betraying his own countrymen, Jesus came to him and offered an opportunity to follow Christ. He went on to become one of the 12 apostles and write the book of Matthew. How did he do it? He was available and obedient when called. And who can forget our guy, Peter? Also one of the 12. Peter is known for his innate ability to have your mouth much farther ahead than your brain. When Jesus was at Caesarea Philippi, right after Peter in all his boldness correctly declared Jesus was the Christ. Jesus warned his disciples that he was going to die in Jerusalem. And what was uh, Peter's response? Look at Matthew's account in Matthew 16. and verse 21 it reads, From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. It's like, Okay, far be it from you, Lord, uh, uh, from you, Lord. He said, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Right after he declared that. Peter's Peter, uniquely made and not afraid to speak his mind. Even at the Last Supper in John 13, 6, when Jesus was preparing to wash the disciples' feet, In order to show how the disciples must lead, Peter says to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? He said, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. And Peter says, never shall you wash my feet. To which Jesus tells Peter, unless uh, he washes him, that Peter can have no part in him. Of course, then Peter, getting ahead of himself, says, not only my feet, my hands, my head, just everything. Foot and mouth disease lives on. But it does show his willingness to be both feet in. Like that feet, foot and mouth. That's great. (laughs) Even right after that, in Matthew's account in chapter 26, Jesus says, This very night you will fall away on account of me. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. And he says, Even if I'll fall away, I never will. 
And what does he say? Truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter, even if I die with you, I will never deny you. And the rest of the disciples said the same. But Peter had that inability to control what his mouth has to say, yet when the Holy Spirit comes on him at Pentecost, it's a whole different story. On that day, all the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. To which the people assumed, rightly, well, not rightly so, but uh, that they were drunk. At that point, Peter gives this very eloquent speech, a sermon perhaps, uh, to all the people, and here's the response in Acts 2. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and asked Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise belongs to you and to your children and to all who are far off, that includes us, uh, and to all the, uh, whom the Lord your God will call to himself. With many other words he testified and urged them, be saved from this corrupt generation. Those who embraced the message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to the believers that day. And how cool is that? We had a baptism class today. Peter, despite his ability to get up ahead of himself, even denying Christ himself, Peter begins his ministry to the Jews, on, and on that day, 3,000 people are added to the faith. He was available, and he was obedient. Let's stay in the New Testament for a moment. Now let's switch views to age instead of people's weaknesses. Because uh, I think it's another perspective is how we look at the church and how people uh, can be used. A child, a young boy. You don't have to be someone well-versed in theology in order to make an impact in the kingdom of God. You just need to be available and obedient to God's call. In this case, it's a young boy. He had the resources for the miraculous to occur and to teach the disciples a thing or two to boot. We're going to be in John 6 for this. So it's a little longer. After this, Jesus crossed the other side of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias. A large crowd followed him because he saw the signs he had performed on the sick. Then Jesus went up on the mountain and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish feast of Passover was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a large crowd coming towards him, he tells Philip, where can we buy bread for these people? But he was asking this to test them, for he knew what he was about to do. Philip answered, 200 denarii would not buy enough food for each of them to even have a small piece. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, Here's a boy. He's got five barley loaves and two small fish. But what difference is this going to make among so many? Have the people sit down, Jesus said. There's plenty of grass in the place, so all the men sat down, about 5,000 men. Jesus takes the loaves and the fish, gives thanks, and distributes them among all the people. And when they're done, he tells the disciples to gather the pieces up, all right, so that nothing's wasted. They had 12 basketfuls, isn't that interesting, with the pieces of the five barley loaves that were left over. When the people saw the sign that Jesus had performed, they began to say, truly, this is the prophet who is to come into the world. The boy, he just simply gave what he had. Probably something that he carried with him, maybe for him and his family. 
But in his obedience, I don't think he just stole it from the kid, but in his obedience, it caused people's eyes to open and recognize that Jesus is no ordinary person. And that's beyond the miraculous feeding of the 5,000, not including the women and children itself. Available and obedient. Let's ratchet the age up a little bit, and we're going to look at two people. The first one will be Timothy. He was likely only a teenager when uh, Jesus began his ministry, and his mom and uh, grandmother quite possibly became Christians during Paul's first missionary journey. Timothy later met Paul on a second missionary journey, where Paul found him useful, and Paul decided to take Timothy with him to preach the gospel and strengthen the churches. By this time, Timothy was likely in his mid-30s. Through Paul's coming alongside him, through his mentoring of him, as we see in the letters to Timothy by Paul, Timothy's ministered in at least five of the early churches and is considered to be like-minded with Paul in how to carry out the ministry. You can see that particularly uh, when he speaks to the Philippians in Philippians 2.20. So here we go with the theme again. All these people available and obedient to hear or to do what God has for them. Taking that same age bracket, flipping the gender a little bit here, uh, we're going to look at Esther heading back into the Old Testament. Esther lived at a time during the exile, or that she was separated from her parents as a, a young teenager, when King Xerxes was, uh, began a search for a new queen, where she ultimately became the queen of that kingdom, and, uh, but she had to keep her identity in secret. She was an Israelite. As the story unfolds, Mordecai uncovers a plot by Haman to destroy, kill, and annihilate as if one of those isn't enough. All of the Jews, young and old women and children. Mordecai informs Esther of the plot and asks her to go before the king to beg for mercy. I love the movie Esther when she goes into the doors of the king's area. Uh, she responds back to him in Esther 4. And here's the last part of the exchange. It's in Esther 4.12. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast uh, uh, as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. If I perish, I perish. This was a courageous act to take on her part. It's probably maybe around 20 by this time. Uh, as seeing the king uninvited is subject to a penalty up to and including death. In the end, through her availability and her obedience, God miraculously works through Mordecai and Esther to save the Jewish people from genocide. For our last person, we're going to stay in the Old Testament and visit an old friend of ours. That is our man Abraham. In Genesis 12, the Lord says to Abram, Go from your country, 
your people and your father's household to a land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the people on earth will be blessed through you. We see the storyline continue in Genesis 15 where God solidifies the covenant made with Abram along with the pronouncement that Sarah will be with child even though they're of old age. And Abram believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now Abram got ahead of himself a little bit with Hagar and the birth of Ishmael. However, when Abram was 99 years old, he could still do things for the Lord at 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him again, pronouncing that he would be the father of many nations. And at that time, his name was changed to Abraham. The Lord told Abram and Sarah that she would bear a son in their old age and that it would be through him, Isaac, that an everlasting covenant would be established. They laughed, of course, right? Uh, But it's through this covenant that we stand here today justified by faith, as it says in Romans 4. Against all hope, Abraham, in hope, believed and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith, in his faith, in his faith, and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was delivered over to death, for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. So whether you're old, whether you're young, whether you have a dysfunctional family, or even would rather run from God, God can do some pretty extraordinary things through some fairly ordinary people like you and me. Application. Because it fits for every one of you guys and me. I know we went through a lot of vignettes, a lot of scripture to take in. We probably could dive into these in a little bit more detail. You can add others too, like Joseph and David and John Mark. Uh, (laughs) Wait, I missed the joke. Okay, yeah. (laughs) Okay, because we had John. Okay. Uh, But the intent was just a high-level view. Um, but to see how God can use you and can use me to achieve great things for the kingdom of God, even though uh, you may not think of yourself as someone that really is up to the task. We all have weaknesses, and we'd be fooling ourselves if we said that we didn't. We all have physical challenges, especially as we get older, but God can use anyone at any time and at any age to accomplish his will. All that's required is for you and for me to be available and obedient when he calls. And then through that, some pretty amazing things can happen. So I have this question. What is God telling you today? 
What is the Holy Spirit knocking on your door about today? If he's talking to you, I'm sure it'll be incredible because it's from him. And whatever it is, I'm sure it'll be used to accomplish something greater than you could have ever thought about. If you're hearing his voice and you need confirmation on what you're hearing, please talk to someone. We could use it as a body because we're here together, right? So if God's telling you something, it's meant for the body. And if you find yourself running and he's already got something planned for you, don't do that because you might end up in the belly of a whale and you don't want that either. (laughs) Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you use ordinary people like us. Sounds crazy that you would use the church, use people like us to accomplish the plan of salvation for all the people of the world, to go out um, and be your hands and feet, to accomplish the incredible, the miraculous, to be um, the hands and feet of Jesus, giving water um, where needed. Crazy plan, but it's your plan, and we're all a part of it. I thank you for that, that you would take us, as we even talked about communion, take someone who who didn't deserve it, uh, and you died for us. And you're using us now to accomplish your will and purpose. Um, Each one of us is uniquely gifted by you. um, And we're all part of this body. Uh, We all are enabled to accomplish the will for Bartlett um, and what you have for us. Do extraordinary things through us um, as we are available and obedient to hearing what you have. Mm -hmm. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.